a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. Today we're going to be talking about the history of terrorism and extremism in Canada. For that, I have Phil Gursky on the show. Phil was previously on the podcast in Season 2, Episode 13. But in case you missed that, I'll give you a bit of background. Phil has over 30 years as a strategic intelligence analyst, in which he specialized in radicalization and homegrown Islamist extremism. Phil has worked for several organizations, such as the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and the Communications Security Establishment. Currently, Phil is the President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and he speaks on all matters related to terrorism, public safety, and intelligence. And today, uh, today we're going to be going through his uh, one of his most recent books, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to Present. Uh, this book was released in February of this year. So. Hopefully you get a, go pick it up. We'll go through as much as we can, um, but there's so much content. So I'm happy to have him here. So welcome, Phil. Hey, thanks, Nathan. It's always nice to be back on your podcast. Congratulations, by the way. Your, your podcasts are amazing. I love to, to talk with Laura Huey recently. I've, I've known Laura yeah. for many years because I was a Western grad and um, met Laura many years ago. And it was a great chat. I really, I think, honest chat you had with her. So congrats on the success of the podcast. <laughs> thanks. I always bug her because I always say uh, she's got the biggest potty mouth out of everyone, especially in academia. Oh, she does. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to get you back on. Um, I don't think I've been able to find a book like yours where you have like a basically all in one talking about the history of terrorism in Canada. Uh, I found this fascinating. And I was saying just before we fired this up, uh, I had to keep stopping and researching people and some of the stuff that's happened because most of it's been during my my lifetime. And some of it, I'm like, I barely remember that or maybe it was in the news for a short period. But uh, yeah, it was real comprehensive. You had lots of names and groups. So uh, I, I kept stopping and looking things up. It took me two months to read a book. Should have taken me a week. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you, Nathan. Maybe we'll kind of dive right into some of this. and. We'll start by defining some of these these terms and um, ideas that we're going to talk about. So, can you talk a little bit about terrorism itself? Uh, and one of the things you do point out in the book is, is terrorism is not defined in the criminal code. Terrorist activity is. Yeah. So, can can you define terrorism in general? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a great question, and you know, it's interesting that um, for a book that goes back to Confederation. And we'll talk about the first act of terrorism. I won't, uh, you know, no spoiler alert though, but it occurred before we were one year old as a nation. For, for the vast majority of Canadian history as an independent country, we didn't even define terrorist activity. That only came into the criminal code after 9-11, which means that prior to 9-11, if you were engaged in activity that the average Joe or Jill in Canada would consider terrorist in nature, there was no actual law against that. There was no punishment for terrorism. It had to be called something else, like murder or attempted murder, conspiracy, whatever kind of thing. The problem with this isn't limited to the criminal code. Um, I There's a friend of mine, uh, we were both um, uh, 
scholars in the Netherlands years ago. And he said he claims to have found more than 200 definitions internationally on terrorism. Wow. That's academic, that's criminal codes, that's uh, the average person, whatever kind of thing. You can imagine with 200 definitions, there's going to be some wiggle room. The way that I look at it, and it, it's, it's both overly simplistic and maybe almost a, too, a little bit too narrow for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss. Terrorism is any form of violence planned or perpetrated in the name of some kind of an ideology, an idea, a religion, or a political system. So that, that's pretty simple. The problem is, is that what do you mean by an ideology? It's, ideology is not defined in the Canadian Criminal Code. Religion? Well, okay, you could say most people understand what religion is, but what about cults? Are cults so are cult killings acts of terrorism? Uh, what does politics mean? And so when you have any particular thing that happens and you want to say, gee, was that an act of terrorism or not? Generally speaking, it gets much easier if the act is carried out in the name of a group, which we recognize as a terrorist group. So again, post 9-11, we came up with what's called the listed entities of Public Safety Canada. Full disclosure, I wrote the first description of Al-Qaeda back in 2002 when I was at CSIS. So if I say, if they, you know, if I say Nathan Romans, you know, is a card-carrying member of Islamic State or, or Al-Shabaab or whatever kind of thing, and it turns out that that group is listed by Canada and you do something in its name, that's a pretty simple one plus one equals two. However, um, most acts are not carried out in the name of a specific group, A. And B, um, a lot of acts are allegedly carried out in the name of a group, but the group, the group would know people from a hole in the ground. And let me give you a good example. It's kind of, yeah, you know, we're going to talk about the Toronto 18, I think, at some point in this podcast. Yep. The Toronto 18 referred to themselves as Al-Qaeda in Canada. The Toronto 18 was as much Al-Qaeda in Canada as I'm an NHL goaltender. You've probably never seen me play goal, but let's just say I have a, pro- I have a hard time stopping beach balls on a good date. So just because you say you're Al-Qaeda in Canada doesn't mean you are. So all this to say, it's a long answer to a very short question, but it's a highly problematic term. And we're seeing that now in uh, a lot of uh, violent events here in Canada that also, to throw another wrench into the system, what's a hate crime? Yeah. A different part of the criminal code. And hate crimes are often as violent as acts of terrorism. I would argue that the um, the um, murder of, of four Muslims in my hometown of London back in 2021 was surely a hate crime, and yet the Crown is, is coming in with terrorism charges. So what's the distinction between hate crime and terrorism? It's not really very easy to define. You know, terrorism has been on our minds since 9-11. Obviously, you can't have an act of that incredible size and not steal people's you know attention. But I think that we've got to be really careful in in being judicious in how we use the word terrorism when we when we decide to apply terrorism charges because there are also implications for the crown for the prosecution in Canada to establish terrorism motive but that's we can we can deal with that later on in the podcast as well and one of the things I kind of was going to touch on later but maybe we'll just kind of touch on it briefly here is um, when you talked about hate crime and a lot around the definitions of these things so whether you're talking terrorism or hate crime I find um, in my case, like we might come across hate crimes more in terrorism as police. Um, it, it very much depends on who's defining it. So it's like what political party's in at the time or who's, you know, uh, writing that actual definition out. 
that's going to have a direct influence on what we do. And some of the stuff I don't like, like when it comes to the hate crimes, you know, you'll get someone punch somebody else because we've had this, just like punch somebody else and they'll call them a racist name while they're doing it. And all of a sudden you'll see in the news, oh, they're being investigated for a hate crime. Like it's not a hate crime. It's a crazy person just rambling on. But they do these things, they put these narratives out there. And you mentioned this quite a bit throughout the book. You know, to, you got to be careful with what you say in the news, in the, the public space, because once you say that, now people start, you, you know, you create fear in a community or whatever it might be. So yeah, if, if we have to be careful with the definitions. I think people just generally want to put things in a nice, neat box. But most of this stuff is it like, it's a Venn diagram. It just overlaps in a million different places. So. And there's, and there's two associated problems, Nathan, with this, whether, whether hate crimes or terrorism. First and foremost, you have to prove the motivation. Mm-hmm. And you know sometimes that's really difficult to do. You, could, you, know, you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I took a knife and I stabbed somebody in a mall. I, it's on CCTV. We got eyewitnesses. I took a knife and I went bang. Why did I do it? Well, now you're getting into my mind. Unless I, I write a manifesto, and even there, manifestos should not be trusted. These are often just streams of consciousness. Anders Breivik, the guy in Norway back in 2011, wrote a 1,500-page manifesto. I have it on my bookshelf. Trust me, it is boring, boring, boring. And how much of it is real? How much of it is just his imagination? Secondly, from a prosecution's perspective, you know, in Canada, first-degree murder is an automatic life sentence, supposedly with a minimum 25 years behind bars before parole can be entertained, but we all know that that's not always the case. What's the penalty for terrorism? Automatic life sentence with 20 years. So, So in other words, why would you ask the Crown to try and prove motivation, which is very, very difficult? You have to be able to read people's thoughts. Yeah. But in fact, if you get a, a successful prosecution and a guilty verdict or guilty plea, you get the exact same sentence under Canadian law. You know, it, it, to me, it, I'm not sure why you would want to do that. So we, we survived as, a, as an independent nation for over 130 years without terrorism laws. We could easily scrap terrorism in the criminal code tomorrow still do our prosecutions, still do our investigations, and still come up with the exact same result. Does it allow, once uh, a terrorism charge is laid or something's labeled as such, does that just mean we get to throw more resources at it? Do we get certain kind of funding? Like, There's got to be, a, a, say, a benefit to calling something terrorism? You know, I, I never thought of it that way. I, I don't know. I, I don't... Certainly, it does raise the fear factor, as you alluded to earlier. If we think we've got terrorists running around, whether they're white nationalist terrorists or jihadis or Sikhs or God knows what, people become much more afraid. Because the T word, look, it's not a coincidence that the word terrorism and the word terrify come from the same Latin root, mm-hmm. right? People are afraid by these types of things. I don't think it's a resource issue. Look at, you know, CSIS, where I used to work, has a mandate under Section 2 of the CSIS Act to investigate terrorism, along with other things like espionage, foreign interference. What CSIS does and what ends up being the prosecution are completely irrelevant for two reasons. CSIS doesn't collect evidence, so its information can't be used in court. Secondly, the reasons why you investigate somebody may, in fact, not at the end of the day end up with the charges you're like. Think of Al Capone, right, in the yeah. 1930s. You know, he's a, obviously he's a, he's a head organized criminal in the United States, and what's he found guilty of? Tax evasion. So the investigation you do and the decisions that are made with respect to what charges lay under the Canaan Criminal Code be two completely different things. As long as you get a guilty verdict at the end and you put the guy behind bars, that's all you really care about. I, it's just that I, I think we've had terrorism on the brain since 9-11 because yeah. of the enormity of that act. 
And we have, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all kinds of other groups. Now we have, you know, the so-called rise of the far right. We have probably the, the rise of the far left in terms of environment. We've had a, a possible act of terrorism in BC a couple of years ago against that, a coastal gas thing protein that nobody's calling terrorism, by the way, mm-hmm. even though it bears all the hallmarks of ideological, political, and serious violence. And then what do you do with First Nations violence? Is that terrorism? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody want to mention those two in the same sentence? So it becomes a very, it's a very charged term, I guess is what I would say. And if it's not necessary, then why are you complicating matters? Yeah. This might come strange coming from a guy that's written six books on terrorism and worked in counterterrorism. Like I said, working in counterterrorism has no relationship to what the eventual criminal case might be down the road. Yeah. And well, that's one of the things I wanted to uh, define was, can you talk about a bit about the move from, uh, it was counter intelligence before and then the move to counterterrorism can you kind of define those two and what's involved in the work sure so i started my career in intelligence way way back well before you were a glimmer in your parents eyes back in 1983 and i joined an organization called communication security establishment i didn't know at the time i thought i was joining national defense they fooled me i get into work i'm 22 years old full of piss and vinegar and they say oh by the way son they called me son um we're giving you access to the keys to the kingdom the most you know sensitive signals intelligence in the world, and you better not um, disclose it or you're fucked. We're going to basically gonna, you know, haul your ass in the court kind of thing. Um, that was during the Cold War, and that defined what CSE did. We were, large, we were a Cold War uh, organization monitoring Soviet communications. That's what CSE's mandate was. I was part of a very, very small team. They were all university grads, um, about a dozen of us that did anything but the Soviet Union. We were called the, we were called the rest of the world. I'm not making this up. Okay. As the 80s... As the 80s unfolded, of course, the Soviet Union eventually dissolved in 1991 at the fall of Berlin Wall in 89. And so your intelligence services, including CSIS, which of course came out of the old RCMP security service back in 1984, was still largely a counter-subversion, counter-intelligence, counter-espionage organization. But, um, you know, a year after CSIS was created, we had the Air India attack of 85, the single largest act of aviation terrorism in history prior to 9-11. So this brand new organization made up largely of former RCMP officers who had resigned their commissions and become civilians, along with a bunch of university grads at the time, were now being asked to take a look at, at terrorism under Section 2C of the CSIS Act. And it was a huge learning curve. Mm. Um, this is before the days of Al-Qaeda. This is before the days of other types of things. And all the technology and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So as CSIS matured over the 80s and 90s, you could see kind of the shift. So, you know, when, when, the, when the Cold War ended, remember, you know, President Bush, thousand points of light, all this bullshit. Um, Russia's our friend now. Hey, I was in Moscow talking to the Russian, Russian security service about terrorism in the 2000s. So, you know, we, we, they, were, we were, they were allies. Um, the, 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 the shift focus, we don't need to worry about Russia anymore, ex-Soviet Union. We don't need to worry about foreign uh, partners spying on Canadian soil. It all became all terrorism all the time, which, of course, now, I mean, this is in a pro- podcast on, on espionage, but given China's interference, given, you know, Russia, Russia and Canada, Russia and Ukraine, obviously that's become a priority as well, which, which kind of points to the, the challenge for security intelligence and law enforcement, as you're well aware, you've got too many priorities. Yeah. You've got too many things to look at and finite resources. And so where do you put your resources? So we went from all having all our resources in the counterintelligence basket for decades, now putting all, most of our resources in the counterterrorism basket for decades. And now we've got to figure out how do we make each basket have enough resources to do the job? Okay. When, and you made a, an interesting point in the book. You talk about the intel culture in Canada uh, and you that it was an immature in, intel, immature intelligence culture. Um, 
this is something I, I try to talk to people about, but uh, I'm wondering if you can explain your thoughts around this. Sure. Mine are that we suck with intelligence. <laughs> like oh, maybe outside of CSIS and CSE, but uh, uh, like in the policing world, like we don't share very well. We don't utilize things. I think we just collect information most of the time, but we don't turn it into like a usable product. I, I, I would differ in a slight way, Nathan. I, mm-hmm. I think we did our best to package up the intelligence in a way that any idiot could understand. And I'm not calling all government officials idiots, but certainly some of them were. Um, look, you know, w- when you work at Intel, there's and it, same thing in law enforcement. There's two things you can protect beyond to the greatest degree possible, and that's sources and methods. You burn sources, you burn methods, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. I remember working on a file in the 80s and uh, a politician who I shall not name uh, went public with an allegation against a certain country. Let's just say that the information that led to that allegation came from a very, very sensitive technical source. And that technical source disappeared the next day. And we never got it back again. And it was an incredibly important source of intelligence for us. So, you know, it's really important to, to, to not disclose that information because then it, then it, then it gets lost. I, when I talk about immaturity, what I'm really talking about is more on the receiving end. Yes, we have our issues with sharing. We'll talk about evidence versus intelligence at some point, I'm sure, as well. But to me, um, Canadian officials just don't know what to do with intelligence. Um, yeah. They don't trust it. They, they don't believe it. It complicates matters. Look at, you know, getting back to the whole China issue. CSIS has been warning about Chinese activities in Canada for 40 years. Yes, successive governments of both political stripes, by the way, not just the, the liberal government, yeah. have ignored the intelligence. That, to me, is an indication that they don't understand what intelligence is for. It wasn't always that way in Canada. You go back to the Second World War, intelligence was critical. Military intelligence on Nazi Germany, on Japan, et cetera, et cetera, played a very significant role in our ultimate victory against the Axis powers in the Second World War. However, unlike the, the Americans and the Brits, and I would argue the Australians within the Five Eyes community, um, we don't have that kind of culture here in Canada that understands intelligence, wants to use it. And don't get me wrong, I, I had clients that would drop everything to hear. I had clients that would, would postpone meetings with people until they got the intelligence in, in advance so yeah. they could figure out what, what people were going to say to them. So they had an advantage. But that was rare, extremely rare. People see intelligence as dirty. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it's not fair. Um, it's underhanded. Well, shit, it's either the world's oldest or second oldest profession. I always get those two confused. <laughs> Spying has been around, you know, since day one. And and if you don't use it, well, you might do it on moral grounds or ethical grounds. And that's, that's your prerogative. But why would you ignore a source of information that can give you the advantage? And I think we here in Canada have done that at least in, in, ever since the second world war. Maybe even more so for, um, uh, instead of politicians, but the public in general. How do you educate the public on what's going on out there without, I guess, sounding, you know, you're not trying to create uh, fear in the community, but you also, you know, all the allegations of being racist, which is a good part that you talk about at the end of the book, but we'll bring it up now. Um, So, you know, how do you get it out there and say like, hey, this country or these people or whatever it is, this group, are doing this to us and we need to put a stop to it. I think that's a huge component that's missing. Like we don't get the word out enough and create that, um, that care among the public. And I think that's one of the big ways that you get the politicians to change their minds too. 
is some example. What you and I are doing today is a good example of getting information out there. When I retired in, in, in April of 2015 from CSIS, from I, I joined the OPP right afterwards. The anti-terrorism section worked with them for the rest of 2015. I had already known by that point that I wanted to go public and not in a whistleblower kind of way. I'm not an Edward Snowden, yeah. right? And I worked with people at CSE, one woman in particular who went public in the 90s that, and she should have been shot as far as I'm concerned for what she said. She disclosed sources and methods like you wouldn't believe it. Nothing ever happened to her. Couldn't even charged. Was this in the news? Like, did it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah? She okay. went public Yeah, and uh, talked about all of our collection platforms and nothing was ever done. But that, that, oh. that's a whole other story. Um, there is. Canadians are woefully ignorant, um, both because they don't care uh, and because they don't know to whom to turn. And, and one thing I've noticed when I was working in the security service, the so-called national security experts, some of them were very, very good. Some of them couldn't spell national security if you gave them the first 16 letters. And yes, there are 16 letters in national security. <laughs> what I mean by that is that, you know, anybody can hang their hat and say, I'm an expert in national security. Did you work in national security? Did you work for law enforcement? Did you work for the security service? Did you recruit human sources? Did you run technical sources? And, and yet, and so because it was a vacuum, because, you know, you know as well as I do, Nathan. I mean, for Edmonton police to say something officially, boy, it takes a lot, right? Because they got to be very careful what they say and how they say it. Yeah. It's even worse for security services. We don't say anything because our, the fear is if you if you open the door a crack, people are going to push on and want more information. Yep. And, you know, even the CSE I worked for, Communication Security Establishment, wasn't even acknowledged to exist until 1984 after I joined. Now you see ads for recruiting. And, well, exactly. And that's it's a thing, huge shift. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> because they want to attract the best people. But, I, you know, I, I think that Canadians uh, deserve to know more about this world to an ex extent possible. I mean, obviously, I will never talk about it. Well, I can't talk about ongoing ops. I'm not involved in ongoing ops. I'm retired, for God's sakes. But, you know, even when I share, when I write books like this, I'm very careful on what I can share and what I, what I don't share. I think that's good. And I think more people who worked in the business, whether it's law enforcement, security, intelligence, should have it, you know, go out there and, and offer to the media, here, you want a perspective on things? I can give you a perspective. I mean, here's the analogy, Nathan. Um, would you go to for somebody for heart surgery who read about it in a magazine? I'm guessing the answer is probably no. Correct. Yeah. Okay? So why would you turn to somebody on national security issues who's never worked in national security? I mean, and there, there, there's an academic field. <laughs> No, there's an academic field and it's legitimate. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah. Right? But people are commenting on ops and commenting on what CSIS should or shouldn't do or RCMP or CSIS or EPS should or shouldn't do, never having walked out a kilometer in your shoes. Who the hell do you think you are? So I, I legitimately, I, and I, know I, I knew I wanted to write books. And so six books later, I, I knew I wanted to get out there. And once the media found out my background, they were more than happy to, you know, have me out there as the, the guy. But one thing I've, I've done, uh, as I said, whatever you do, please don't call me an expert mm -hmm. because the word is meaningless now. I mean, everybody's an expert and I don't want to be associated with people, you know, who know nothing about this field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, we have a lot of that issue here. Um, we get people that are all kinds of use of force experts and you're like, I don't know what this person is talking about. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll kind of move on to the book. I think we've kind of defined where Canada's at uh, and some of the background. But now let's talk about some of the actual people and, and groups that have been involved in this. Uh, I like the way the book's laid out. So you start kind of real big in scope and you're talking about the ethno-nationalist terrorism, which is 
from reading the book, it seems like most of the terrorism, at least back in those days, that's what it was. Um, is that, you know, can you define the ethno-nationalist terrorism for us a bit? And then maybe we'll, we'll get into why that's like where, where terrorism kind of started, at least for us. Yeah, so there's an interesting guy I interviewed years ago on one of my podcasts uh, named David Rappaport. He's an American academic, and he, he has this thing called the Four Waves of Terrorism Theory. And, it, it, you know, it, it works out pretty well. But he basically says that terrorism has evolved over the past 150 years. So most people would agree that as a, as a, as a phenomenon, terrorism doesn't start in the 19th century, but that's where we kind of start thinking about it in terms of terrorism versus something else. There certainly were acts of terrorism prior to that. But it's a good starting point. And so terrorism has gone through a number of waves. And by waves, he means what are the underlying motivations? And the ethno-nationalist wave really started taking off um, after the First World War. when a lot of nations who were, you know, colonies of the United Kingdom, France, Belgium, Spain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, wanted to, be, wanted to become free. They wanted to be independent. And, and people would use violence against the colonial powers to achieve that goal. So that's what we call that's what we call it ethno-nationalist terrorism, basically. And it really dominated from around the second, first world war until kind of the 1960s, when it, it was overtaken by what they call kind of like the, the new left or, or, or social terrorism or something like that. Again, these terms are very devilish. You have to be very, very careful with them. But the reason why ethno-nationalist terrorism is so important in Canada, of course, is because we're a nation of immigrants. I mean, you know, I'm I'm third generation Eastern European. Um, don't know what background you are, but we are a nation of immigrants. And what happens often is that immigrants bring their issues with them. Mm-hmm. Often they come to Canada because they're fleeing poverty. They might be fleeing um, persecution. Um, there's all kinds of reasons people will settle here. And it's interesting that for some of those people, not all of them, but a lot of people want to come here and say, you know, fuck it, forget it. I, I, I fled country X because I don't like it there anymore. I want to start a new life for my family, et cetera, et cetera. But there are others who want to take their causes with them and they want to set up shop here, use Canada as a safe haven to raise funds, raise awareness, whatever, or in worst case scenario, actually plan acts of violence against their former countries to get back at people. We see this with the the traveling uh, Eritrean riots that have been going on, Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary. Exactly. Like that is the probably the most crystal clear example of yeah. this. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Because they can do it here. Because let's face it, if they were to do that back home, they'd be arrested and or killed by the security forces. Yeah. And they know that that's not going to happen here in Canada. And look, I'm not saying that people don't have issues that they can raise. And they can make, you know, make people aware of injustice. I, I'm all, I, I have no problem with that. My problem is that when you start advocating violence to get back at these people or somehow to get retribution for what you allege to have happened to you. And that's why in Canada, I think that for the better part, the first part of our history, when it came to terrorism, most of the, the groups, individuals were tied to what I call ethno-nationalist causes. And then they got usurped in the 1980s when sort of the jihadis took over. And that's also in keeping with Mr. Rappaport's theory that, you know, Islamist terrorism, which really begins um, around the time of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, although, it, again, it predates that, has been the dominant form of terrorism for the past 40 years and the dominant form of terrorism in Canada uh, for the same time period. Yeah. So if we start. Um... We'll go to the beginning of Canada because we basically had terrorism right off the bat. <laughs> and uh, start with Thomas Darcy McGee. Mm-hmm. So tell us about this guy and uh, you know, <laughs> what his deal was back in the day. 
So Thomas Darcy McGee, a very well-known Canadian. My, my kids attended Thomas Darcy McGee Catholic School when they were growing up. So his, his name is quite well-known. He was an Irish politician. He came to Canada. He was an Irish nationalist. He wanted an independent Ireland from England in the, in the 1800s. Uh, ended up coming to Canada and realized this, um, this movement wasn't going anywhere. And so he kind of, he was still, an, he was still Irish at heart. But he wasn't willing to advocate any kind of, you know, violence or political movement against Britain for an independent Ireland. Uh, and as a consequence, because he wouldn't support those in Canada who did advocate that the use of violence, that he was seen as an enemy of Ireland. And in 1868, he was he was he was up late. It was a late session of Parliament. He lived in a rooming house, uh, literally across the street from Parliament Hill. He put his key in the door to get him home late one night, and a guy came and shot him and killed him. And it turned out that the guy who shot him and killed him was uh, what we call a Fenian. And the Fenians were largely American, although there were some Canadians who advocated for an independent Ireland and using violence. And they saw Canada as the weak link, because Canada was a British colony back then, yes, until 1867. And so the Fenians actually invaded Canada in 1866. They crossed the, the river at Buffalo and engaged uh, British militia at a place called Ridgeway, kind of near modern-day St. Catharines, Ontario. And so the Fenian threat in the 1860s was the threat to Canada, and it was strictly an ethno-nationalist threat. It was the use of violence in the name of pressuring Britain to grant Ireland independence. And if I could put a side note in here, I'm actually writing a new book. I'm, I'm, I'm researching a brand new book on the Fenian threat of the 1860s to see how serious it was and how the Canadian government portrayed it at the time. But there's no question that even though, you know, it wasn't treated as terrorism, Patrick Joseph Whelan was hanged for first degree murder. He wasn't charged with terrorism because there's no terrorism on the books back then. But it was clearly uh, an act of violence, serious, I mean, killing somebody is an act of serious violence. And it was done for political reasons, which is terrorism under section 83.01 of the criminal code right now. So if we'd had terrorism on the books, he would have been charged with that. And this act of terrorism occurred in April of 1868. So we already had reached our first birthday as an independent nation before the first act of terrorism took place on Canadian soil. I think that's a fascinating aspect too. Like even, you know, hundred years ago, over hundred years, um, we're still like, so the Fenians aren't going to attack Britain directly because they know, okay, we're just going to get wiped out. Yeah. So we go find one of their outposts or a colony yeah. or something. Um, so this whole idea of going after somebody, uh, you know, in a separate part of the world make a point about something you want back home, right? That's, that's, that's been around since beginning of time, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and as it turns out, um, there are a lot of uh, Irish Americans that fought for the North in the, in the American Civil War. So, of course, the Civil War ended in April of 1865. You've got all these men, they're, they're armed to the teeth. They've just spent five years fighting the South or four years fighting the South in the Civil War. So they're, you know, they're all full of piss and vinegar with nothing to do. And they've got this leadership saying, okay, this is great. You guys, you've got great military training. Now let's get back to the real cause, which is Irish independence. And that's why they they, they basically tried to launch war against Canada. Uh, again, they, there was a battle of Ridgeway. They, they they attempted raids in New Brunswick, in Quebec. Uh, the raid I liked the best was, was in 1870 or 1871. Um, a group of 30 of them tried to go north into what was then Manitoba. If you remember back then in 1870 when Manitoba became a province, a very, very tiny part of Manitoba. It was like a po postage stamp size. Yeah, basically, yeah, the old Red River Colony, right? And so these guys claimed to cross the border and they seized, I think it was a Hudson's Bay post or something. Um, the problem was is that the border was not well-defined back then. The post <laughs> they, they actually seized was in Minnesota. So they thought they got it in Canada. They, they couldn't find it on a fucking map. 
So they they basically um, had this great raid. It you know lasted about ten seconds. Uh, they claimed victory, and then they kind of faded away. And ever since that raid, nothing's ever happened. The, 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 the threat faded away, but it was a serious threat. And it was it was in fact some have said that had it not been for if, if the Fenian threat had not been serious in 1867, yeah, Confederation would not have happened. That the eastern provinces, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, were balking at, at, at coming into Canada. They want to remain independent British colonies. But because of the Fenian threat to New Brunswick in 1866, that, that, that forced their hand in eastern Canada to agree to become really? initially, you know, Ontario, Quebec, New, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, the first four provinces. So, I mean, think about it. Canada as a nation would not have been created in 1867 He's- had it not been... Because of terrorists. Well, yeah, and you went well, and we'll get to uh, more of that type of stuff when we talk about uh, French Canadians and and that aspect. But um, one of the things too, uh, just staying with uh, all the Irish stuff, uh, I noticed lately when I go through the bookstores, I would go to Indigo or Chapters or whatever it's called. Um, they have a bunch of books that have kind of popped up that are on like Irish revolutions. Uh, it mostly in an American sense, but um, there were a couple to do with Canada, and I, I I didn't get into reading any parts of them, but just looking at them and reading the back, uh, I was like, man, I didn't think this was like a big thing here. Like I had zero clue that the Irish were fighting for independence uh, back overseas or or using Canada like to you know do attacks here, um, and then just they had such a big influence in a historical context, but I don't remember any of that in school. And I'll go one further. You know, so I, I was born in 1960. So of course, you know, the terrorist group of the 60s was the IRA. Yeah. You think of Bloody Sunday 69, you think of the, the bombings in England, you think of the killing of Lord Mountbatten, the attack on Margaret Thatcher in Brighton, where the the uh, IRA famously said, you have to get lucky all the time. We have to get lucky once. It was a failed bombing, but it could have killed the British Prime Minister. Um, how many Canadians realize that yeah. without the Fenians, there's no IRA? So a, a movement that 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 started in, in northern United States but had sympathizers here in Canada, that eventually became the IRA after Ireland attained independence in 1921 from Great Britain. And the other thing that, you know, people say, oh, IRA, that's 60s and 70s shit. Who cares about them? There are still six, you know, provinces in Ulster, Northern Ireland, that do not belong, belong to the Republic of Ireland. And there are people who still say they belong to Ireland. They should not be part of the United Kingdom. And if England will not listen to us and grant them independence to join Ireland, despite the fact that the Northern Irish don't want to become part of Ireland, they say we're justified in using violence to achieve that. So maybe the, you know, the IRA may be seen as yesterday's terrorist group, but I, I can guarantee you, as I said earlier, people who have grievances that are not resolved, there's always going to be a small number of people who say we are justified in using violence to resolve our grievances. So if you're going to try and tell me that nobody on the planet thinks that using violence in the name of an independent Ireland is still around, i got swampland that I'd like to sell to you. Because there's always going to be somebody yeah. who thinks this is the only way to get, to get what you want, i.e. in this case, independence for the entirety of Ireland. Yeah, I, I and even if you get a new group and you think it's a whole new thing, generally, they pick up on themes or topics that the previous groups have um, maybe in, in talking about some of your work with CSIS, uh, like if you hear of a new group, so Al-Qaeda or ISIS or whoever it might be, when you hear of them, you immediately have to go and research, go through all the history and go, okay, what, you know, what are they latching onto here? Who are we dealing with? What, 
you know, what region are they looking to grab? Why? Like, is that a big component of it, the history? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, from an investigative perspective, not necessarily, because the, the motivations are the same. Whether it's ISIS, so sticking with the jihadis right now, whether it's Al-Shabaab or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever, they all speak, they all sing from the same psalm sheet. Mm-hmm. I mean, my very first book, um, The Threat From Within, way back in 2015, discusses the ideology. They all share the same ideology. It may be different at the fringes, but the cores are always the same. They use the same Quranic texts. They cite the same historical figures. So they're all they're all basically cut from the same sheet. The only time it makes a big difference is what I alluded to earlier is the listing process. Mm. So, you know, if a group you know branches off from you know, Al-Qaeda in Edmonton, this is where you hope there's no such thing out there, but you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> if you want to list Al-Qaeda in Edmonton, you've got to come up with proof in open source, by the way. You can't use intelligence for this. It indicates here's who Al-Qaeda in Edmonton are. Here's what their platform is. Here's why we think they qualify as a terrorist group. So it only gets really, really dicey um, when, from the listings perspective. And from my perspective, I was never really too worried about listings. It didn't mean we could or couldn't investigate somebody. Listings really came into, I think, as a tool for the government in terms of financing. Um, yeah. so if you send a you know, check to Al-Qaeda in Edmonton, and Al-Qaeda in Edmonton is a listed terrorist center, you can be charged under, under terrorism financing laws. So, it, you know, terrorist groups come and go. All the time, it's the underlying ideology that rarely, rarely disappears. And you, you know, you're referring back to the IRA. I mean, you have the real IRA, the provisional IRA. I, I've lost track of how many IRA groups are out there these days. Bottom line is, they haven't entirely disappeared because the underlying grievance hasn't been entirely addressed. I think part of the the issue, though, is like, and you brought this up in the book a few times, where Canadians can be forgetful about a lot. It's like the an act happens and then they just kind of move on and they forget about things. Squirrel, but if squirrel. Yeah. And if if we want to understand, because a lot of people, when these, you know, 9-11 happens, people immediately immediately ask why. And it's like, well, if we look at all the history, we'll know exactly why. We, you know, we have to keep that in our minds. It's it's the, you know, forgive but not forget kind of idea, I guess. Just we have to know why these things occurred, the historical context, because and like we were just saying, we're a nation of immigrants and a lot of people are bringing their tribal warfare and, and issues over here. And those are issues that have been going on for thousands of years. If we look at the Middle East, like these are never settled disputes. So we have to understand why. And then, you know, you have a better idea, I guess, or grasp on on the context. So not that it's solving it necessarily. That's the enforcement part or, or intelligence part, but... Yeah. Understand. But I, do you remember the old Doonesbury comic, Nathan? Doonesbury. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a big American comic. Yeah. I don't know if it's still around, but it's big in the 90s and 2000s. One of my favorite Doonesbury comics was there's a, I forget the character's name. It doesn't matter. He was a reporter and he was in uh, the old Yugoslavia in the 1990s and he was in a cab. He'd driven somewhere within whatever, Serbia, Croatia kind of thing. And the cab, he gets complaining about, you know, all these. These fucking Croats, I can't stand them kind of thing. And I, what they did to my family is terrible. Blah, blah, blah. And the guy asked us, oh, you, you sound like you've been you know, personally affected by, by what happened. When did this happen? Oh, in 1324. You know, um, my great, 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 great grandfather was killed by their great, great, great. You know what I mean? What I mean is what you say, like these, these grievances and these issues, often they span centuries and people don't forget. And I, I think that, if, you know, for, for the average Canadian, you know, they ask why, but we know why. And, and you know whether you're an academic or you're a historian or intelligence or law enforcement, 
you have that background to understand why are these groups, why do they hate each other so much? And, and, and things rarely have ever happened at the spur of the moment. There's always a ton of baggage that's there. And if you don't understand that ton of baggage, you fail to understand why these groups hate each other so much and why they'll use violence to lash out against each other. And even outside of uh, an extremism or terrorist context, just even in the org crime world, yeah. we're, we see a lot of this right now where these are personal beefs. People think it's like, oh, we're fighting over the drugs or the guns or prices are too high. Wrong. All wrong. It's literally personal beefs. You killed my friend or my brother or something. Yeah. Now I come at you. Well, now that guy's brother or cousin is mad and they come back at you. It, it is that through and through. So never letting things go. I mean, and we see that in, sorry, yeah, in no, the terrorism world. I mean, you know, there, there was that attack in, in, in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019, I believe it was in the spring. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was white nationalists went into a couple of mosques, killed, I think, 52 people. Uh, a week later, a month later, uh, an Al-Qaeda group, or no, sorry, an Islamic state link group in Sri Lanka attacked a bunch of Christian churches. And they cited, and I quote, because of that wanker in New Zealand killing all the Muslims, we're going to kill white people and Christians in an act of revenge. So there is a one-upmanship, absolutely, as much in the organized crime world as there is in the terrorism world. Yeah. So we have very first instance of terrorism in Canada, but then we have a huge gap in in the history of it happening. Do you, um, we come up to French Canadians. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, that space and time though? Is there any reason why nothing happened or is it just, is there smaller things happening just not classified as terrorism maybe? Yeah, uh, no, it's a really good question. And I must say, I, I was, I was a little surprised when I did my research to, to not find anything. And, and if you look at terrorism on a, on a worldwide level, uh, during that time period, so later 19th century into the, you know, through the two world wars, you don't talk about terrorism a lot, even internationally. Um, again, there was some, there was certainly some terrorist movements in Africa, again, tied to the anti-colonial movement. But beyond that, in the literature, there simply isn't a lot of terrorism, and I don't know why. Now, some people have said, I missed something. I should have put the Dukeburs in there. You remember the Dukeburs? Oh, these are all the old folks, you know, parading naked in, in Alberta. They were a right-wing oh. Christian cult. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know a lot about them. Apparently, they carried out acts of violence. Uh, I don't know if they killed anybody, to the best of my knowledge. I did. I chose not to put them in there because I just didn't see that as a as a terrorist. That was a cult. Mm. Uh, I didn't see what they did as, as terrorism per se. But again, given the wobbliness of the definition of terrorism, people could easily just as well make a, def, a, a case that this was an act of terrorism. But from my perspective, it simply wasn't serious enough. And as a consequence, um, yeah, we had that gap pretty well from the assassination of T.D. McGee. You did have still some uh, Irish nationalist actions in Canada. Uh, in fact, the Welland Canal was apparently going to be attacked as late as 1900 by Irish nationalists in Canada. Never was, so that didn't take place. Maybe because the wars became so do- the wars in the Depression became so dominant in terms of our um, attention span. Yeah, um, terrorists did, didn't have any way to. You know, get on the public's mind because it, it was already the mind was too full of worrying about, you know, the world being at war and the world surviving a depression in between. Yeah, it seems like uh, everybody had other things yeah. kind of on the go yeah. <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so we move up to the period where we're talking about French Canadian terrorism. Uh, kind of run us through through what happens during this period. Sure. So, of course, you know. Um, 
for listeners who aren't as familiar, I mean, we had the Battle of, of 1759 in which the British defeated the French, or, you know, Montcalm and all that kind of stuff. And so basically French Canada became English Canada, but there were some who, you know, still their allegiance is still with France, still with French culture. And the allegations that the English mistreated the French, didn't respect their language, didn't respect their culture. So you have this simmering in the background for the better part of two and a half centuries. By the late 1950s or the 1960s, you've got also, I mean, you look worldwide, right? You're dealing now with the Vietnam War. So, you know, people are becoming more and more involved to protest against their governments and perceived uh, misdeeds by their governments or unfairness by their governments. This is the whole 60s, 70s kind of thing where, you know, rising up um, to, 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 to protest and in some cases use violence is acceptable. In fact, in the United States in the 1960s, the greatest terrorist threat was from the far left. With like the weather underground and things like that. They're basically pissed off at U.S. society and want to change it. Maybe I'll just add in there too, uh, for context for people, like this is when TV is becoming big and, and things yeah. are becoming broadcast nationally. So yeah. people are getting information faster. Um, you're getting on like exactly. the nightly news. So I think that has like a big part to play in how people are. Oh, it's a great point. Yeah. Connecting. Oh, yeah, and you're right. And, and you know, and you know, to, to fast forward to today where, where news is instantaneous. Yes. Unfortunately, it's not always well thought out or corroborated. And you know as well as I do, whether you're working in a police investigation intelligence, corroboration is, is what you need. Well, you know, independent sources corroborate the same thing. Any source can lie. And I think that you know what, what you believe today, whether disinformation, misinformation, whatever the campaigns are out there, is problematic. So, you know, in the early 60s, then we've got this group of people in Quebec that say, okay, look, we really don't want to be part of Canada. And it was a small group and um, they, they tried to push for it politically at first, didn't seem to get anywhere. And then they started setting off bombs in Montreal. And by, so from about 1963 until 1970, the stats that I saw were somewhere in the, uh, in the neighborhood of 250 bombs were put off in, in, in Montreal, mostly in post office boxes and stuff like that. Um, total of six people in total died, though. Um, some of them wrong place at the wrong time, or trying to dismantle bombs, et cetera, et cetera. They held up banks to, to raise funds for their movement, and they're more like a pain in the ass. Montreal Police was trying to deal with them. I'm sure the RCMP Security Service as well. And this is essentially labeled as subversion. Hmm. So subversion is under Section 2D of the CSIS Act is any attempt to overthrow the democratically elected Canadian government. So essentially what the FLQ, the Front of Quebec, Quebec Liberation Front, was trying to do was essentially use violence to get their way, i.e. secession from Canada, independent Quebec. And, um, you know, by, by October of 1970, then they kind of crossed the line. They, they kidnapped uh, a British trade representative and they kidnapped a Quebec minister whom they killed, Pierre Laporte. James Cross was the British representative. That's when the shit hit the fan. And the then Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Basically said, okay, enough's enough. Like, okay, we're not putting up with this shit anymore. Once Laporte's body was found, and now that you've, you've kidnapped a, a diplomat, uh, this is serious shit. And so basically the government declared martial law, invoked the War Measures Act in October of 1970, and eventually James Cross was found. I, I talked to the um, RCMP officer who was actually one of them who found him and knew where the FLQ was hiding him. But interestingly, at the end of the day, none of these guys were charged with terrorism. In fact, um, one of them, I forget which one it was, he was allowed to go to Cuba, uh, essentially uh, free to you know, just leave the country kind of thing. So even though we had six deaths, 250 bombs, we had a, a, a side living in terror of the FLQ in the 1960s, uh, you know, when push came to shove, um, part of the perpetrators were simply allowed to leave the country. Yeah. You think about that. 
I mean, think of, you know, allowing, I don't know, um, one of the Toronto 18 just to go to Bahamas just to get him out of the country. I mean, you wouldn't even think of that, you know, nowadays. But back in 1970, that was a, a solution to our problem. It just kicked them out for the time being. Really, really bizarre. And yet, again, this was a serious terrorist movement. Again, it wasn't called terrorism because there's no terrorism statute in, in legal code. But it met every definition of terrorism that anybody, I think, would would, uh, would see as a, a legitimate definition. And there's a there's a really good book on the October crisis. Um, I can't think of the name of the author, though. I'll have to put it up when I put up the episode description. I think I know which one you mean. I think I've got it on my shelf, actually. I can I can picture the cover in my head too because it's got like a lav or one of the vehicles. Is it the making of the October crisis? Yes. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. yeah. So um, people could pick that up and see yeah. a very specific view on just like focused on that um, those events. Uh, yeah. So we have the FLQ setting off bombs. We have the the kidnapping. Um, from there. End up moving into a couple referendums as well, right? Um, one of them was during my lifetime. I was pretty young when this happened, but I remember this being national news. I remember my parents kind of—they're never political, like they weren't ever—they never really talked politics around me or anything. But I remember them kind of watching this and talking a bit about it, which got me thinking, like, oh, maybe this is something. Like this could be an issue. I remember uh, kids in school talking about, like, oh, if Quebec leaves, like. What's going to happen to the provinces on the East Coast and what's happened to the rest yeah. of Canada? So yeah. um, you want to talk a bit about the referendums? I got a better story for yeah. you. So uh, the first referendum was held in May of 1980. And um, I was—I just finished second year at Western in, in London, where I'm from. And I, I got a summer job working. This is an exchange program between Ontario and Quebec. So Francophones would come to Ontario and Anglophones would go to Quebec to learn each other language, cultural, you know, the kind of, you know, big group hug, all that kind of bullshit, right? So I ended up working uh, in a uh, manpower office, of all things, in downtown Quebec City. And my job started the day after the referendum. <laughs> Here's this kid, Anglophone kid, from London, Ontario. My French was pretty good. I mean, I, I could you know, get by. I didn't speak Quebec French, but I could speak standard French pretty well. Here's this is white kid from London, Ontario, right? I mean, Bastia, I mean, London, Ontario, how more British can you get for Christ's sake? Um, <laughs> who starts off in an office full of Quebec francophones. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what in heaven's name have I signed up for? And I, it was fascinating. So it was definitely the talk of the day around the water cooler for about 15 minutes. And then that's it. People just moved on. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Let's get back to work. Because if you remember, the first referendum was 60-40 against. So it wasn't even really very close. Quebecers said, you know what? We don't want that. We don't want to separate from Canada. We, we, we want to become part of it. So, phew. As you know, white kid from London, I'm thinking, thank God I'm not going to be lynched in the street on my first day of the job. <laughs> but then the second referendum back in 95 was much more interesting. Because not only was the vote hair thin, 50.1% against separation, 49.9% for separation. I was at CSE at the time. So this is Canada Signals Intelligence Organization. We don't collect on Canadians. That's not what CSE is all about. It's a foreign intelligence organization. But we are, of course, very concerned about what would international reaction be? What would happen to our financial markets if the vote had gone? Yes. What were the implications, as you said, for the eastern provinces? How does Quebec what, what share of the national debt does Quebec have to pay in order to separate from Canada? These mm. were big big discussion items back then. They have to pay all of it. They owe <laughs> a lot of money. Well, yeah, of course. Exactly. 
But the fact that it was so close, it's like, holy shit, this, we came that close to separating as a country. And again, I remember, um, I remember um, Jacques Perizot's speech where he blamed the English and the uh, ethnic vote for the loss. He was all pissed up that night. I remember he was half in the tank and he made the comments. And my job was to stay awake that night because, of course, you know, you have to monitor different time zones to see what the international reaction was to this. And thankfully, it was it was okay because again, the referendum failed. We haven't had one since, and I don't think we'll ever have one ever again. But that was it was dicey. Uh, and you know, the other thing you bear in mind is that you've had two referenda; they both lost. The second one by the skin of our teeth. What if this turns violent now? Yeah. What if people say, "Okay, we've tried two referenda. We haven't. We've tried the democratic process. It hasn't worked. We haven't gotten what we want. Maybe we start blowing shit up again. Maybe we'll get what we want." Well, and we're closer, right? So we've we've drawn another ten percent to our side. So things are trending right exactly. direction. So yeah, yeah, maybe we've got the numbers now. And as as you as you're well aware, nothing. I mean, again, it fizzled out in the days. I mean, it was it was it was discussed a lot what the implications were, but because that's ninety five. That's thirty years ago. Yeah, nobody seems to care anymore. So thankfully, it didn't turn down that violent pathway again. But there was definitely that concern that it could. Absolutely, I like the way that you. Uh, you had in the book here, so it wasn't called a separation, but uh, a sovereignty association. So an arrangement, it, uh, some compared to divorce with bedroom privileges. Bedroom privileges, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, we don't really want, yeah, we want to separate, but oh, can we keep all of the natural resources kind of thing? And uh, oh, and can you keep giving us some of your tax dollars so we don't have to raise our taxes too high? Yeah, like yeah. whose military is going, going over there, right? Like it, it's just... It was a joke. It was a complete joke. What an absolute disaster it would be. <laughs> It's very Canadian, right? Very Canadian. We, we'll separate, but we don't want to. We don't want to become enemies. We, but we want to say we want to apologize first, right? You know, the old joke, right, Nathan? How do you find a, a Canadian on a crowded subway? Uh, Punch everyone in the face, and the person that says sorry to use the Canadian. That's yeah. what we do, right? <laughs> and so, that, even our separation is supposed to be polite. I think even the uh, the other side of it, where they, uh, you know, people are they vote, and it's by the you know just uh, a small margin, and they kind of just let it fizzle. I was like, oh, that sounds very Canadian. We're like, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, whatever. <laughs> we'll worry about something else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we had the FLQ and that was through 60s, 70s. Um, uh, and do, are there still any kind of remnants of them? Do you see any of that uh, when you were working at CSIS? No, no. But I mean, the other thing that's important about the FLQ, of course, is that um, those events of the 70s, of the 60s and 70s, led directly to the creation of CSIS. Yeah. So if you remember, there were allegations at the RCMP in the 1970s through the security service. So for your listeners, the security service was created in the aftermath of the Second World War. It was largely an anti-Soviet body to look at Soviet interference, spying in Canada. But it had a large mandate to look at anything terrorism-related and subversion as well. And the allegations that, that the RCMP was involved in, um, shall we say, uh, non-standard practices in the in the province of Quebec. Um, and I'm not going to be critical of law enforcement. You do what you need to do to make sure you got you know you're up on what's happening. But just being Canada, of course, uh, it wasn't very polite. The RCMP didn't say sorry for burning the barns. Uh, and as a consequence, we had the so-called McDonald Commission, which led to the uh, decision to create the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. What that meant was taking that function. You know, investigating subversion, espionage, foreign interference, and terrorism, and putting it in the hands of a civilian agency, and that 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 saw the light of day in June of 1984. I was at CSV at the time, 
And we have this brand new organization um, that came out of the ashes of the FLQ crisis. And, you know, no FLQ crisis, no ceases. You draw a line right from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you wonder kind of what things would look like nowadays. I mean, you have a few other events like but 9-11 probably would have been a genesis for some organization out of that. Probably. Yeah. Um, but who knows what things would look like now. So. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, but it's sorry, it's, it still gets complicated because, you know, when you created the new security intelligence service, um, if you took it out of the law enforcement realm, uh, CSIS doesn't collect evidence. It collects intelligence. And you guys in law enforcement, you have a standard you must meet. It was called the evidentiary standard because you know that the information you collect could be brought to court, can be challenged by the defense, yeah. right? You, I'm sure you've been on the stand you know, many times. I've been on the stand, yeah. you know, cross-examined. And um, if your information isn't good, uh, it gets thrown out and your and your your case can fail, right? Well, in intelligence, those of us who work in intelligence, the last thing we want is to have a, have, have our, our sources placed on the stand. And so there have been cases in Canada where the Crown, the prosecutions, decided to drop a case out of the fear that intelligence could be compromised in an open yep. court, rather just drop it. So when CSIS was created of the old RCP intelligence service, we still had to figure out you know, CSIS collects intelligence. CSIS doesn't, you know, go to court and lay charges. So if we have information that so-and-so is engaged in activity that could could um, constitute an offense under the criminal code, it's a very delicate relationship with the RCP. The way I like to put it, Nathan, is like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, Phil Gursky's an asshole. Have a nice day. Yeah. And that's as far as we go. Because, we, you know, if we disclose information, you know, you guys, you cops, you always have your book, right? And you're writing stuff down. And that book is evidence. And it can be demanded in the court of law. So we make sure, put your pencils away, boys. We're not going to, you know, don't write anything down. This is just a, a hint, an indication. You might want to take a look at Phil Gersey for, you know, X, Y, or Z reasons. And then you guys, you know, in the case of the RCMP, that's when they would start or continue a completely independent, parallel, non-joint investigation. Yeah. Because the, the information collected has to be to an evidentiary standard to possibly be used in court down the road. And you bring up a good point. And this is something that, we deal with even nowadays. So yeah, if we're if we're laying a charge on somebody as law enforcement, you know, all the evidence has to be presented and it goes to court. Um, but there's many times where you can talk to people. You just talking to people or informants, and it might not be usable info, but it still points you in the right direction. You know, okay, I'm not wasting uh time and money and and resources. Uh chasing ghosts here or a bad lead like they can come in and say that right they can say hey you're on the right path maybe you want to steer it a little bit more this way you're like oh okay i gotta start hanging out in this area or looking at this person that's all it is and it's yeah we have a lot of a lot of police and this gets back to the intelligence thing and information versus intelligence a lot of people are afraid to use uh intelligence or sources um, but you know, they, they, it can complicate things at times, but a lot of the time we wouldn't be able to do half the things we do without it. So whether you whether it becomes disclosure or it's just something on the back end where you're like, okay, that's a nice yeah. to know, but I, I can't formally yeah. use it. I start up my own investigation, go from there, collect yeah. the evidence. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing CSIS I think has been fairly uh, criticized for historically, um, 
is we don't talk enough to you guys. And the one thing when I worked at the service, one of my my favorite activities was actually going across the country and talking to law enforcement as an educational piece. Not to say that you guys didn't know shit from Shinola, but you know, based on our what we've been looking at, we see these things as important. And we and I felt personally that that was helpful because you know you guys got a lot on your plate. You're not just investigating national security. You're investigating organized gangs. You know, you you got drugs. I mean, you guys got way too much work given the resources you have and then the public pressure you're under not to fail, right? And to not get, no, not to be seen as doing things wrong, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Yeah. So I, I found <laughs> that my, my time with law enforcement was, was, was great. And, and that's why I, I agreed to join the OPP, Ontario Provincial Police, uh, in 2015 when I retired. They approached me and said, hey, we, you know, we've, we know who you are. You've briefed us a million times in the past. We hear you're retired. We'd love to have you as a resource on our team. Help law enforcement officers. And, and, and the OPP, the anti-terrorism section draws from a variety of municipal services across the province. They usually go on succumbent to the OPP anti-terrorism section. So here's guys from Sault Ste. Marie to Windsor to London, all kinds of stuff. They've never worked terrorism. Why would they? You've got other things to worry about, right? And so well, my job was to basically to help them understand, you know, what is terrorism? What does it look like? And if you're doing investigating, you know, person X in Oshawa, when he says these types of things, this is generally what it means. And then that, you know, and, and I, I can honestly say with great pride that, some of what I was able to help them with led to a successful terrorism prosecution in Ontario mm-hmm. because they now understood, you know, what terrorism was, how to collect, you know, the evidence to the standard um, uh, demanded by court and to get a successful prosecution, which we did. So, you know, again, I tip my hat to you guys every day. I mean, law enforcement is there for us. And is it perfect? No, but neither is intelligence, but neither is anything else. But, you know, there has to be a way for us to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's delicate. It's complicated. But I, I think we do it fairly well it would be my assessment yeah i i think it's generally it's a good relationship <laughs> it's just it's nice to talk about some of the the critiques of things and and point them out because yeah we don't want to make it we don't just blow by things that could be no. corrected no. so of course not but yeah we know we covered the the irish period we've gone up to the french period one of the things that uh was fascinating in this book was talking about the armenian genocide mm-hmm. and then some of the impacts in canada I had no clue about this. So, uh, yeah, if you could uh, run us through some of the events that happened here. So, okay, um, just to give your, your listeners a bit of background, when we talk about the Armenian genocide, so this goes back to the, the First World War. Uh, and during the First World War, the um, there was no country called Turkey yet. It was part of what's called the Ottoman Empire, which dated back to the 16th century. And the Ottoman Empire was a huge... Uh, tract of land it went all the way east as far as iraq it went all the way west as far as vienna in fact they were at the gates of vienna in the 1680s and as they got through the gates of vienna they could have conquered western europe this was kind of the ottoman empire was kind of the the successor to the muslim empire of the 8th 9th 10th 11th centuries anyhow um so the ottoman empire um in its waning days which we didn't know at the time actually fought on behalf of germany in the first world war so they were an enemy uh, of the West, uh, you maybe maybe you've seen the famous film Gallipoli with Mel Gibson. Oh, oh, a great film where the Australians landed uh, in Turkey um, in 1916 to put pressure on getting so that they, the Ottoman Empire would be busy fighting there as opposed to fighting German and Austrian troops on the front lines on the Western Front. Great film with with Mel Gibson. Um, not that Mel Gibson made a lot of great films, but that's a whole other issue. Um, so 
Within Turkey at the time, there were a lot of minority groups. Um, the Kurds, you probably heard a lot about the Kurds still these days, who wanted to enter Kurdish terrorist groups fighting for an independent homeland. And um, another group were the Armenians. So there's, there's currently today an Armenian country. It's Armenia. And it, actually, it's in the news today because of its yeah. dispute with Azerbaijan over disputed territory called Nagorno-Karabakh. But anyhow, there were millions of Armenians living in Turkey at the time, the Ottoman Empire. And the Turks saw them, first of all, they weren't Muslim, they were Christian for the most part. And the Turks, Ottomans saw them as a fifth, a fifth column, as a danger. So they basically kicked the Armenians out beginning in 1915, forcibly. Yeah, pick up, pack up your bags, piss off, leave the country. And this was the great sort of Armenian um, march uh, of those of those those years, and thousands of people got starved to death or or died or whatever kind of thing. And this was all in the in the um, in the goal of trying to keep Turkey yeah. a, a, a pure Turkish country. So the Armenians never forgot that, and as a consequence, they tried to get Turkey to a acknowledge. This, Turks have never acknowledged it. And so, again, a grievance, right? You've got a political grievance. In this case, partly religious too, Christian versus Muslim. And at the fringes of this movement, you have people who want to use acts of violence to remind the world of what, what Turkey did. So, true story. Um, it was the summer before I joined CSC back in 1982. I was working as a translator uh, over in Halt, Gatineau, today. Um, I had already been, I uh, just about was... I hadn't quite signed my contract with CSE, but I was I was in the, the running for working with CSE, but it was a summer job over in Gatineau. I'm driving back to London to do my master's degree at Western, and there's a RCMP roadblock on the 417, which is the main highway that traverses Ottawa. And they're stopping all the cars and checking inside and stuff, and I've been interesting. And it turned out because that morning, um, I, much, I didn't wasn't aware, there was an assassination uh, right along the Ottawa River, something called the Sir John McDonald Parkway. And it was a Turkish diplomat, military attaché, who was at a stoplight. He was shot dead. And he was shot dead, allegedly, by Armenian terrorists. So, again, the use of violence to try to make a point, to get Turkey to apologize for the Armenian expulsion of 1915. They were never caught. They fled into the forest and were never caught. Three years later, I was working at CSE, and another group of Armenian extremists, there were a whole bunch of Armenian extremist groups, like an alphabet soup of groups, uh, they stormed the Turkish embassy in, in downtown Ottawa. And they killed a security guard who was a, a young Francophone who was acting as a, you know, like a rent-a-cop kind of thing, right? They killed him. They stormed the embassy. Uh, they took it over and eventually surrendered. They didn't kill anybody else. But again, this was another Armenian group that was trying to punish Turkey for the Armenian, mm-hmm. what they call the Armenian genocide of 1915. So again, you know, under the rubric of ethno-nationalist terror, that we have Armenians living in Canada a small number of whom thought that we need our, our cause needs attention. The world has to be educated on what happened to our people 100 years ago. And as a consequence, we had, or in that case, 75 years ago. And so we had uh, two acts of terrorism on Canadian soil. Um, again, the Armenians that stormed the embassy and killed the security guard were not charged with terrorism or the criminal code because there was no statute of terrorism or the criminal code. And I think eventually they were, they were deported. And I'm, what I'm wondering too is why Canada again? Why is it always in Canada? They, you know, why not? You, yeah, you know, you, you can act relatively independently. Um, you can say it's freedom of expression. What did the prime minister just say, Nathan, about what you know? See, Kalistani terrorism, Canada. When Modi, okay, I'm not, I'm not a Modi fan. Okay, Narendra Modi, you're from, or the Indian president, but Trudeau's first 
response to Indian accusations that we're allowing Khalistani terrorists to operate. What did Trudeau say? Freedom of expression. Yeah. That was his first response, which is under the charter. But freedom of expression does not include the advocacy of violence for political, ideological, or religious means, which is an act of terrorism. So they see Canada as, a, as an easy place to operate from. Yeah. We're not going to pay much attention to them. They're not, they're not hit, they're not attacking Canada or Canadians, right? Although we have an obligation under the Vienna Convention of the 18th, 19th century to protect diplomats on our soil. Well, even you you had a point at the beginning of the book where you talk about uh, you know, Canadians don't necessarily see an attack on diaspora as uh, an attack on Canadians. It's like, but if we're inviting all these people here to be a part of this, uh, this country, and then they're getting attacked and, and influenced or whatever else is happening, it's like maybe we should actually stop some of this stuff from happening. So well, not only because people are dying, and you know, a death is a death is a death. I mean, you know, innocents get caught up in it. If somebody's spraying gunfire at a high commissioner embassy, and you're walking down the street, you're wrong place at the wrong time, and you're killed. Should we care about that? But we have, we have an obligation to protect people. We have an obligation to, to stop violence from happening where we, where we have intelligence or evidence or some kind of indication that's happening. Uh, absolutely. Why we don't do it, I have no idea. You know, this notion that you know, well, it's only a Turkish diplomat. Well, that, that comes up in the Air India bomb, which we're going to discuss next. I know that it doesn't really matter because it's not a Canadian. Well, that, that's a, a stupid way of looking at things. And as a consequence, uh, our partners can say, well, just what the fuck is Canada doing? Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they a partner of ours or not? Or they, you know, they're not protecting people from acts of violence. It, it, it eats away at our credibility. You know, you know, you know, Nathan, we in Canada, you know, living in the shadow United States, we always try to, you know, make more noise. Hey, it's up. Canada, we're great, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yet, if you don't act like a like an international partner in a mature way, people can say, you really guys don't, you guys, guys really don't matter. You know, you're not really important. Well, we're seeing that now, right? We're seeing that more with some of the pack. I think you're seeing huge with the India thing and with China as yeah. well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't have any idea about a lot of this Armenian uh, aspect to the, the terrorism here. Um, one thing, and before we do get to the the uh, Air India bombing, um, you had a section on Cuba. And this, again, kind of along the same lines as uh, Armenia, they were setting off bombs. You had uh, There was a bomb at the Cuban embassy in Ottawa, the consulate in Montreal, like a bunch at the yeah. consulates in Montreal <laughs> over a few years. Um, and I just, I didn't know that was even a thing. Like, I don't know where this is in the history books. I, I imagine... Most schools only got so much time to teach these things, but I feel like these are important things. I, I have a true true confession for you. I wasn't aware of them either. Uh, it's funny, when I was doing my research, these came up and somebody pointed them out to me. Uh, I believe my source was an ex-RCP security service member, so he would have been the one probably investigating these, uh, these bombings and threats against Cuban diplomats. But again, you know, you strip away the details and you get down to the, the core, and the core is always the same. You know, when I, when I, you know, you asked me to define terrorism at the outset, I, I'm going to redefine terrorism for you in a way that, you know, my, my, my six-year-old grandson can understand, okay? Something's wrong. I know who's causing the wrong, and I got to hurt that person to, to right that wrong. That's terrorism in a nutshell. Yeah. So something's wrong. Cuba is a Marxist state, and all the people that, you know, made money were kicked out in 1959 when, uh, you know, when the Castro regime took over. They're the ones responsible for this. 
I know exactly who's responsible. It's the Cuban government. It's their military. It's their spies. It's their diplomats. It's their apologists all around the world. Oh, and the only way I'm going to get any retribution is to start bombing things and killing people. Then they're going to start paying attention to me. That's what terrorism is in a nutshell. That's exactly what happened here in Canada. Was they saw Canada as an easy place to attack Cuban interests to, to, to make their point and to somehow, you know, wish that, you know, Cuba, oh, well, you bombed our consulate Montreal. Here you go. You can have your country back. Yeah. I mean, it's very naive at the, it's the nth degree, but that's the mentality that obtains when, you, when you're talking about terrorism. Well, and I'm just going to quickly run through a few of these because there's actually quite a few. This was the, the most shocking part to me. So in 66, you have a bazooka attack <laughs> took place against a Cuban embassy in Ottawa and bombs exploded at the Cuban uh, trade offices in Ottawa. Like a literal bazooka. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, an explosive device was detonated at the Cuba pavilion in, at the Expo in Montreal. Um, a bomb exploded at the warehouses of Fraser Brothers, a Canadian firm trading with Cuba, and Cuban trade offices were bombed in Montreal. 69, bomb placed in the doorway of the Cuban consulate in Montreal failed to go off. 72, bomb exploded at the Cuban consulate in Montreal, killing an official named Sergio Perez Castillo. 74, another bomb at the embassy in Ottawa. 76, um, explosive device was lobbed at the Cuban consulate in Montreal. And then in 80, you have a couple more bombs set off at that uh, consulate. I was just, I was shocked. I was like, man, I didn't know there were so many attacks. Like Canada, um, honestly, you wouldn't think outside of, I think people nowadays outside of 9-11 probably don't have a clue about most of these things we've even covered. We see Cuba as a a cheap place to go on vacation. And full disclosure, (laughs) my wife and I did go couple years ago and it was pathetic we hated it uh it was cheap it was we got the the requisite cuban you know briefing we went to havana one day and they led us through the greatness of the cuban revolution and the dastardness of the americans etc etc so yeah i'm not going back to cuba anytime soon um it's funny as a side note when i joined intelligence way back in 1983 we used to have what was what was called um um, the hag group the hazard activities group there are a list of nations that i could not travel to and not surprisingly, it was the Soviet Union and its allies uh, and Cuba. Uh, and that less has changed now, obviously. Uh, a, lot, a lot has changed in the past 40 years. But when you worked in intelligence, um, especially during the Cold War, uh, you were pre- once you signed on the dotted line that you get access to sensitive, especially signals intelligence, you were prohibited from traveling to certain countries. And uh, you just couldn't. As simple as that. And so, like I said, my wife and I did, we figured we'd just go once and yeah, trust me. I won't be. I won't be gracing the Cubans with my Canadian currency. Yeah, anytime. It, it was good to try it and say you've done it and yeah. uh, been there, done exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we'll move up to uh, uh, Sikh terrorism, as it's called, yeah. and this here does still have implications nowadays, especially with the stuff that's going Huge. on in the news right now. Um, yeah. The eighty-five Air India bombing. Uh, one of the previous guests I had on here, Kim Bolin, she reported a bunch mm-hmm. on this, um, has received some threats out of this. Uh, so, you know, it, it's very real, even from 85 up yeah. till now. So can you walk us yeah. through um, what this this period was exactly about yeah. and some of the events? Sure. So, you know, most countries are going to have uh, groups of people who don't want to be part of the greater political structure, either for linguistic reasons, religious, cult- cultural, whatever kind of thing. And India, of course, which is carved out of the former, you know, um, originally the Mughal Empire, Muslim Empire, 
and then of course English colonialism beginning in the 1700s is a hodgepodge of different. I think there's some. Um, I, I taught linguistics for 15 years. I'm, I'm a linguist actually by profession. There's like well over 100 languages spoken in India. It's it's a hugely diverse country, and one of the ethnic groups are Sikhs. There's you live in the Punjab, and um, there are those who want the Punjab to be an independent nation from India. So you've got the Indian main part, but you have the Punjab. Is same with Kashmir and Jammu. There's all kinds of other places that want to be independent. So so Sikh independent uh, desires go back a long long way. But back in 1984, there was a, a very uh, active and very violent movement within Khalistan. And um, of course, Sikhism, is, Sikhism is, a, is a different religion. Hinduism is the dominant religion, and Sikhism is a minority. And there was a movement um, that gathered around certain uh, temples, temples that are sacred to the Sikh faith. And the Indians decided to raid one of these temples in the summer of 1984 because they felt that there was um, arms being, being held there and bombs being made, etc., and they're trying to preclude violence. Um, Operation Blue Star? Blue, yeah, Blue Star yeah. against the Temple of Amritsar. Yeah. Uh, and they end up you know, huge battle between Indian forces and Sikh militants, um, slash terrorists, slash extremists. A whole bunch of people died. And then a few months later, um, in retribution, um, President Gandhi was assassinated by two of her bodyguards, who happened to be Sikhs. So this kind of sets in motion this India versus Sikh uh, war. And again, going back to Canada, we have a tremendous Sikh diaspora. Been here for decades here in Canada. Largely, although not exclusively, concentrated in, in D.C. Uh, on the West Coast. And by 1985, we have a lot of groups that are clearly terrorist in nature. Um, Khalistan Liberation Army, the whole bunch of them. I list a whole bunch of them in the book. And um, they want to get back at India still for the raid of the Golden Temple, which, of course, anytime a, a, an army invades a religious space that's very sacred to you, that's unacceptable. You want to basically teach them a lesson. Don't you ever do this again. So beginning in 1985, um, the brand new CSIS, I mean, we're talking less than a year old, is now seized with you know, what's going on in the Sikh community. And is it possible that there are acts of violence being planned? Section 2C of the CSIS Act terrorism that we have to keep an eye on brand new service still getting its feet trying to figure out how does the mandate differ from the old rcp security service what's evidence what's intelligence etc cetera, etc cetera. bottom line is is that we didn't do our jobs to the to the best of our ability and as a consequence bombs were placed on two aircraft one that left vancouver ended up um stopping i believe in toronto montreal eventually was blown out of the sky off the coast of ireland killing 329 people i believe mostly canadians by the way and the other was put on a bomb going the other way to Narita Airport in Tokyo and landed and two baggage handlers were killed uh, by a bomb that was placed in the, in the cargo hold. Remember, too, Nathan, this is the uh, 80s. It was a lot easier to get stuff on airplanes, yeah. right? I mean, 9-11 changed everything. I mean, you know, you and I probably remember, you know, I remember for sure, getting on airplanes, there's no security check. There's no, uh, you know, metal detector. You just waltz on a plane and have a good time. You can't do that anymore. God, you got to clear your first form before you get on an airplane and get a cavity search. But it was much easier to put stuff on planes back then. And as a consequence, the Sikh terrorists based in Canada put bombs on Air India. So this is the state airline of India, a representation of the state of India, to uh, teach India a lesson, to put pressure on them, to uh, you know back off from, from harassing Sikh separatists. And again, it was the single largest act of, of aviation terrorism in history prior to 9-11. It was made and planned in Canada. Yeah, I almost um, call it the the original 9-11, right? Like, it's in a, some ways, yeah. That's a pretty big operation. Many people died. Yeah. Uh, but 
why do you think there there wasn't like this or was there uh, like a grand scale change in aviation security and and all these things is it because like canada it's not the us right when the us something happens to the us everybody's got to yeah. change and and it's a bigger deal is it just a function of the times is it canada what would it be i don't know but i do know that the then prime minister brian mulroney issued an apology to india when this thing happened i'm thinking okay excuse me sir the victims on that plane were canadians they may be Canadians of Indian origin, may have been born in India, they may be naturalized Canadian citizens, but they're Canadians. Why are you apologizing to India for this? It's almost like, I'm going to be blunt, so I apologize for that. A bunch of brown-skinned people got killed. They're not really Canadian, so uh, who's worried about that kind of thing? But you're absolutely right. It should have it should have led to an incredible change in airport security. The fact remains is that, you know, a very powerful bomb, and I, I know nothing about explosives. Maybe you've worked on them. I don't know. I have no idea. But it seems to me that it, it's a fairly significant bomb <clears throat> would be required to, to take a plane out of the sky. You've got to breach, obviously, the, you know, the, the pressurized cabin, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not just a firecracker that they put on it. It was, it was a pretty sophisticated thing, I would guess. Uh, and as a consequence, more than 300 people died. And yeah, it's a good question as to why it didn't lead to more recriminations. And of course, the trials took years. The Air India, remember the Air India Commission? Yeah. I've got all eight volumes of that sitting on a bookshelf somewhere downstairs. Um, you know, like in Canada, right? We'll form a royal commission if something happens. It's so Canadian, as opposed to actually getting to the bottom of what really happened. It happens decades later. Yeah, I know. It's just, anyhow. Um, but yeah, as I said earlier, when you work in security intelligence, you're only as good as your last failure. And this was a failure. I'm not, I'm not criticizing individuals. I know I have very good friends who work seek investigations in the 1980s. I'm not calling them incompetent. I'm not saying they do the job. But end of the day, your job is to stop these things from happening. We did not stop it from happening. Ergo, it's a failure. Yeah, We have to acknowledge that. And does that play into a lot of the politics? On the, like, I'm talking specifically on the politics side today. Do you think that comes up between uh, Modi and Trudeau when they're talking? Like, the, oh, I bet to you raise percent every occasion. <laughs> because, again, um, you know, seek terrorism as a phenomenon. We've forgotten about that. That's yesterday's issue. You know, it doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, hello, it exists still. I'm not saying to the same extent. I don't know. I was never I never looked into see it wasn't one of my specialities at, at the service, but I'd be very surprised, as I said earlier, the grievance hasn't been resolved. Yeah. And I've been here reading a lot lately that people in the Punjab, and I don't know this to be true, so I'm gonna be careful here, aren't as insistent on an independent Khalistan as people in the Sikh diaspora abroad largely in Canada. They've kept that dream alive. And they've convinced themselves we will only ever get an independent Khalistan, a homeland for the Sikh people, independent and separate from India, if we keep blowing shit up and killing Indian diplomats. Is that true? I don't know. Again, the history of terrorism suggests it could very well be true. So yeah, an issue from almost 40 years ago um, hasn't disappeared. And I'm not, this is not to, to, to justify if India, in fact, was involved in the Jar killing. I'm not saying that. But it goes to show that Sikh extremism and the Sikh cause should not be dismissed as yesterday's item. One of the questions I always ask, and one of the things I just wonder about is, you have a lot of people who fight for um, you know, independence. Look at Ukraine right now, right? They're trying to get Russia out and they want to keep their country. Are any of the people that are fighting for this from here going to go back to where or the new country that they create? 
So they're fighting for it from here. But you're saying like the people in India or just the people in Ukraine, they're all fighting wars. Uh, but are the, is the diaspora here who've fled here for whatever reason, you know, and they're like, yeah, we, we want that. But are they going to go back there? And it's like, well, if you're not, then, then what are you what are you fighting for? Why are we having roving groups of uh, yeah. Eritreans fighting fighting for stuff? And I guess sometimes yeah. they'll say, well, I still have family over there. Okay, well, work to bring them here or, yeah. or you know, fight the fight over there. But, you know, causing violence and mayhem over here, what's that? You know, like blowing planes up and stuff. Did you solve anything? No. And we've seen this throughout history time and time again, yeah. doing stuff in, in Canada all these bombings and bazookas and everything going off hasn't really had an impact in your far, far away land, right? No, no, but I guess the thing is that you can point to terrorist movements um, that in the end were successful. And I'll give you a very recent example, the Taliban, right? I mean, we kicked the shit out of the Taliban after 2001, after 9-11. Of course, you know, it took us a decade. We finally found bin Laden. Um, we decimated Al-Qaeda, which turned out to be true. The Taliban kept fighting back. I mean, 160-what number of Canadian soldiers died in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban. Um, 20 years later, uh, the Americans withdrew from Afghanistan. Who's in power? The Taliban. By the way, the Taliban is still a listed terrorist entity in Canada, which is why we can't have diplomatic relations in Afghanistan, because we can't, we can't talk to a group that's a listed terrorist entity under our legislation. So it's true. The vast majority of terrorist groups do not get their way. I've been reading a lot lately about, you know, the Basques in northern Spain. The ETA. ETA was a very violent group in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Carried out thousands of bombings in northern Spain. Killed some officials. They pretty well agreed, you know, been there, done that. We're not going to get that. Although I'm sure there's the fringe of the Basque movement that still thinks the violence is the way. So even if the vast majority of terrorist groups never gain their goals through the use of violence, all it takes is one to say, we can be like the Taliban. Yeah. Or we can be like the African National Congress, which, at least according to the South African government in the 1960s, was a terrorist organization. And they ended up in the early 90s becoming the presidency under Nelson Mandela. So I guess the bottom line, Nathan, is that it only takes one group to, to succeed and someone say, hey, we can do that too. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, the Sikh extremists haven't gained anything over the past 40 years, but maybe hope springs eternal. And um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, well, there's no uh, one answer. And it, I guess it really depends yeah. on the groups you're dealing with as to how hard they want to fight for a certain issue, how much they want to push it, and what their ultimate goals are. So, I like to say that, you know, um, terrorism is 50 shades of gray, but I don't think we want to take the podcast down that line. Unless, you know. <laughs> I've only heard, I haven't read any of those or seen the movies, <laughs> so I couldn't tell you a thing about them. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, just talk about the Iranian um, side of things sure. as well. And I think that'll be a good segue into uh, yeah. part two, because you have a part lot two. on Islamist terrorism and it's broken oh, yeah. down into okay. certain periods. So we'll get to that too. Um, okay. But let's finish up with the Iranian one. And then, uh, yeah, we'll, sure. so we'll get to that. So tell us a bit okay. about this here, because I know some people might have uh, an idea of this history and it certainly plays okay. into a lot of the stuff today. So. Your listeners may remember that about a year ago, uh, Salman Rushdie, the famous UK author, UK Indian author, was uh, attacked at an event, I believe, in Pennsylvania, if memory serves me correct. 
uh, he was he was stabbed and he lost an eye. Uh, he was giving a talk. Why would someone attack Salman Rushdie in, in Pennsylvania in 2022? Well, it all stems back to the satanic verses. This was a book he wrote in the 1980s. It was seen uh, by some as an insult to Islam because it made fun of the Prophet Muhammad and his wives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the then Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the leader of Iran, uh, issued what's called a fatwa, which is a religious edict saying, we, we, I, I condemn Salman Rushdie to death because of his insults to Islam. And so you'll go back to those days, early 90s, huge, huge, huge um, threats. Uh, two people were killed, an Italian publisher and a Japanese translator, I might have those two um, professions mixed up, were killed by Islamist terrorists to punish them because they had a role in promoting the, the, the satanic verses. Uh, Salman's Rushdie was given police protection for decades yeah. because they felt that Iranian agents might might find him. Um, obviously, the, the the protection was eased a bit, and then he was attacked last year, which, again, goes to show. He wrote the book in the 80s, and he was attacked 45 years later. Yeah. That goes to show how long the threat lasts, right? Or rather, 35 years later. There was a plot way back in the early 90s, and it was uh, Rusty's wife was going to appear at an event here in Canada. And because it's Rusty's wife, she's equally as guilty as the husband at insulting Islam. And so the Iranians sent an agent uh, over to, to, to kill her. And uh, luckily, through our intelligence, we, we got a hold of this. And I talked to the investigator who was ran that case. And basically, we, you know, when the guy got off the plane, we, we kind of just picked him up and said, we know exactly who you are and what you're up to. Uh, so fuck off. Uh, you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to carry out your, your attack. And as a consequence, nothing ever happened. But again, it, it, went to, it, went to, it shows the extent to which the then regime of Iran, so early 90s, Khomeini's, Khomeini died in 89, uh, Khamenei took over, but it's still very much an Islamist extremist regime. In this case, Shia extremists, as opposed to Sunni, which are what Al-Qaeda and ISIS are, um, felt it was okay to send someone to Canada to kill somebody. And yeah. had that had that had it been successful, that would have been a serious act of violence for religious reasons, i.e., terrorism under the Canadian Criminal Code. But thanks to good intelligence, nothing, nothing happened. And that's the only one I can recall. But I do remember working at CSE at the time, and we were very concerned about, you know, would Iran attack anybody else in Canada? based on this link to the satanic verses in Salman Rushdie. It was a big, big issue in the early 1990s for us here in Canada. Yeah. And well, and we see now, um, I just had it in my mind here, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. People are pushing for them to be listed as a terrorist organization. There's yes. there's a lot of different yeah. things going on with Iran. And I mean, they, they've got influence. Sure. that They're the biggest dog, I guess, in that region. Have influence exactly. everywhere. Exactly. And the other interesting thing, you know, to end on when it comes to Iran is that, um, again, Canada being a safe haven for groups that are in opposition, um, we had a huge presence of a group called the Mujahideen Khal, also called the People's Mujahideen Organization. We call them the MEK. These were Iranians that fled the regime in 79 after the revolution because they didn't want to live under the Ayatollahs. And they were Marxists in, in nature. And they were run by a, a brother and sister team that eventually um, got the hold up in Iraq. And back in 92, I believe it was, I don't remember the year, it was 94, um, there were rumors that the Iranians had assassinated the brother and sister who were living in Paris at the time. And as a consequence, the MEK had a very strong presence here in Canada, and they stormed the Iranian embassy to get retribution for yeah. the alleged assassination of the Rajabis, the, mother, the, the brother and sister, which turned out to be a false rumor, by the way. Uh, they stormed the embassy, they beat the shit out of people, they didn't kill anybody. But um, it was an act of terrorism, obviously for ideological reasons and a serious act of violence. And uh, a lot of countries were attacked. There was an attack on the Iranian embassy in Canberra 
there is an attack on other Iranian embassies to, to basically punish Iran for taking out the leadership of this group. But the NEK were they, they were a joke. They, they were uh, they were a cult. Um, uh, couples who joined were forcibly kept apart. They couldn't sleep with each other. It was some, it was just really bizarre way of doing things. But again, they they, they stemmed out of the order. They were anti-Shah, so they took part in their protests against the Shah in the 1970s. But when the Ayatollahs won, they said, we don't want any part of the Ayatollahs. They're, they're religious, we're political, we're Marxists, we're socialists. Mm. And as a consequence, they became enemies of Iran, and they carried out massive terrorist attacks in Iran in the 1980s. They, one of them was an attack against the, the leadership of the Iranian Revolutionary Party that killed, I think, 75 people in 81 or 82. So this was a terrorist group, and they were listed as a terrorist group in Canada until the Harper government delisted them in 2012. And I remember at the time thinking, why would you delist these people? On what yeah. grounds? But the listings process is a very political one, Nathan. And if we want to put pressure on Iran, maybe to you know be a bit, bit of a, a better boy on the international stage, maybe we can, you know, by delisting the MEK, we can send them send them a signal, and they might might behave better. I have no idea what the thinking was, but yeah, the MEK was something we, we we looked at very seriously in the 1980s, and 1990s in Canada. Wow, it's just uh, all this stuff and how it's so intertwined, and then also. A lot of these things uh, are overlapping, right? Like we have um, things are kind of going into the same decades or even at the same time. But like you're saying, um, it's very difficult for intelligence agencies, law enforcement, all these people to uh, allocate resources to to be completely effective. But we've yeah. we've been good at what we've done so far. I think so. so I think overall. Yeah, I know. I think so. I mean, it, it, you guys see this every day in law enforcement. You, you'll never have enough resources to do everything, which means some criminal acts will succeed because you don't have enough officers to prevent them. It's the way it is. Same with intelligence. You do the best you can. And I would agree with you. Um, law enforcement and intelligence in Canada, very, we're very good at what we do. We go to work with one you know, goal only, to stop bad shit from happening. And most times we succeed. But we're only known for our failures. And, and yeah. that's, that's neither fair nor unfair. It's, it is what it is. Um, you go to work next morning and just say, well, we'll try and stop more from happening. And that, that's, that's the reason why they, they send you a paycheck every two weeks, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that's a good place to wrap this one. Great. We yeah. have, um, we're going to come back with a part two okay. and we're going to talk all about, uh, Islamist terrorism. Cause that's kind of the focus of your career, uh, or for much of it. Um, you've got it broken down into a pre nine 11 post 9-11 to 2013 period, and then from 2013 on. There's also a few other aspects because um, we start to move out of just talking about the big ideologies, but into talking about, you have stuff on a few individuals, um, but then you've yeah. met with some of the families. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of parts we didn't cover, and I want uh, uh, listeners to know that. There's there's sure. many other events, but um, and we won't get into all the individuals because there's, there's so many. No, no, it's far too many. But um, yeah, people need to get the book. They need to read this stuff, know about it. Yeah, uh, and I'll throw links up and and when we get these out. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate so, it. So um, yeah, it's available. So it's available on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so just again for clarification, I self-published in 2020. But I couldn't get a Canadian publisher interested. I'm not kidding you. Really? Uh, I I was already the author of five books published by American publishers, peer-reviewed, and I couldn't get a single Canadian publisher to take any interest in my book. So I self-published. And then two years later, I was at a, a function in Toronto and I had a guy come up to me and say, um, I'm, I'm from a small publishing company in Toronto. We focus on military and security issues called Double Dagger. 
we want to publish your book. Can we do it? I said, absolutely. So I updated it for the second. It wasn't a lot of changes. It's only been two years. But yeah, I, I, I'm not kidding. Canadian, I guess because my name's not Margaret Atwood, they wouldn't touch me. <laughs> so I had to self-publish. Yeah, well, man, I, I, it's, it's good that it happened, right? You never know how things are going to play out, I guess. Exactly. But I'm thankful that they had they they published it. So, um, yeah, no, we'll we'll definitely have a part two here. Uh, just hang on for two seconds, but yeah, we'll see you here soon. Sounds good, Nathan. Thanks for having me on.